Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey there, friends of No Water Methodists. We are uh, once again going to have a segment from worship this last Sunday, and it's uh, a segment where we're covering Philippians chapter 3. The previous two weeks we covered Philippians chapters 1 and 2. Uh, this coming Sunday we'll be on chapter 4, and then I suspect the following Sunday we'll read through the whole book and, and um, have some closing thoughts. So my, my thoughts in doing it this way are um, that we have uh, just a biblically illiterate culture around us, and the scandal is that most churches are similarly biblically illiterate. We live in the age of motivational, inspirational sermons that are very light on Scripture. There are many churches that uh, just do not reflect biblical values or, or culture. And uh, so help me, I just cannot participate in that. So I've uh, been preaching heavily in the scriptures for a long time. Uh, I, I think we, we have more scripture in our worship service than, than any other church, um, well, that I've heard of. No, no, Eastern Orthodox churches really are pretty good about spending time in, in the scriptures. Um, we've also been doing the same day, same page summer uh, reading program through the uh, Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. That's, that's I think, the right I should know this by now, but we have daily Bible readings that I've been facilitating and, and leading that uh, throughout the summer is going to cover the entire New Testament and the Psalms. So I feel like I'm doing what I can to increase knowledge of and, and love of and interest in the Scriptures, but it takes buy-in from the people. So I just want to urge you while you're spending time uh, listening to today's podcast to, to really be intentional about being uh, mindful of and available to God's holy word that that you build daily disciplines in your life of of uh, learning what's in the holy scriptures and and making that your story your book. The only other thing I'd say is uh, we we get ready to to hear the content of of this podcast is if you're not aware, the United Methodist Church denomination, which this church is affiliated with currently, has been um, struggling for some time with uh, the ways in which the culture war has been compromising us theologically, morally, ethically, um, and, and biblically. So um, right now, with, with all those tensions, uh, several hundred, if not thousands of United Methodist local churches have been filing against their annual conferences to leave and join a new Methodist denomination called the Global Methodist Church. Um, this church just recently, our board decided to, to pursue disaffiliation with the United Methodist Church as well. There is going to be a, a vote of the general membership um, in about a month or so. But that's just for the active membership. So um, anyway, I would just ask for your prayers for this church that you help us hold together and do what glorifies God and um, that you, that the Lord would show us what faithful discipleship looks like in this context. So anyway, thanks for uh, listening to my setup and receiving my encouragement towards scriptural knowledge and literacy. And um, 
we, we cover your prayers. I, I think this is a very important ministry here in Nutwater, Oklahoma. So um, thanks for your support. God bless you as you attend upon his word. Now let's, let's hear what we talked about on Sunday. Um, all right. We need, to, we need to spend time in God's word. We're going to Philippians chapter 3. I did not write down that page number. Who's got it? 1825. Thank you. Now, remember, Paul is writing from prison. Um, he's writing to the church in Philippi that supported him materially and spiritually while he's been in prison. They sent him a, uh, Epaphroditus, I think was his name, who uh, brought goods and prayed with him. He almost died while he was there. He's going to send him back with Timothy. Um, he's been talking about themes of obedience and humility. He's been talking about how Christ obeyed and was humble and how we need to be like Christ. He's going to continue to build on that theme. Um, and today we're going to talk about holiness, sanctification, the path that, that Christ puts us on. And we're talking about preventing grace, as I talked about, how God reached out to us before we ever had any sense to turn to him. So those are the themes we're going to deal with. Um, we are on page 1825 at the bottom right part of the, the page. And uh, let, let's, let's join in together. Of course, this is a different format than I preached during the lectionary. You can pipe up uh, and, and say things to me, ask questions, whatever, at this time. This is not a formal thing. This is, the purpose of this is so that you understand it. I'm pretty sure that after we complete the fourth chapter, the next Sunday, I'm just going to read through the whole book and hardly say anything, and I want you feeling like you understand the whole book of Philippians, so that when you open it, open your Bible, you go to Philippians, you go, this is my book. I understand this. I know what this is about. That's what we're aiming at together. Okay, chapter three. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So he's, he's telling us he's about to write something he said to them a lot. He's repeating himself. And I always like that quote from Martin Luther, I need to hear the gospel every day because every day I forget, right? It's good to remind people of things. And in this case, it's as a safeguard. You need to be guarded for your safety against something. He's writing to the Philippians. And remember, he's happy with this church. But there's something that seeks to undo them that he is repeating himself over and over again saying, you need to watch out for this. So let's see what that is. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs. This is a, a slander. Or this is a, a mean thing to call people. Um, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. What's he talking about mutilating flesh? That sounds pretty icky. Verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So here he's talking about circumcision. And so that nobody else has to talk about it, I'm going to remind you what circumcision is. It began with Abraham, and then it was instantiated, instantiated through Moses at the covenant at Mount Sinai, that all males in covenant with the Lord, they didn't have female circumcision, all males on the eighth day after they were born, uh, a, a rabbi or priest would grab their foreskin and cut it off off of the tip of their penis and if you don't know about male anatomy there's just a piece of skin that you can easily pull out and cut off and that was what you did to enter into the covenant community once you had been circumcised you were a member of the covenant community of Israel um, and other cultures practiced it but the Hebrews practiced it in this way with this meaning and so at this point in history, there are people going through all these new churches that Paul is planting and saying, if you're not circumcised, you're not a Christian because Jesus was a Jew and he was circumcised as a Jew. And if you want to be with him, you need to be circumcised too. 
Now, this is something that actually poisoned our culture. Even after all this stuff in the Bible was written, a lot of males in our culture are circumcised. It began in the 1800s. There was this, uh, uh, it's called philo-Semitism. All of a sudden, all these Christians loved the Jews and wanted to be like the Jews. They started naming them things like Hezekiah and Ebenezer and Jeremiah, and uh, they started circumcising their boys. Paul is very against this. He says the two, there are two covenants. The covenant of Jesus is much better than the covenant of Moses, and you don't want to go from Jesus to Moses, that's stepping backwards. You want to start with Jesus and stay with Jesus. He writes about that to the Galatians. He says, I wish those Judaizers would just cut their whole penises off. That's what he says. He didn't say the word. He says, I wish they would just cut themselves and keep going. That's kind of how the Greek goes. So he, he hated these guys. He said these guys were winning people away from Jesus. He says, you who are in Christ, you're the true circumcision. You haven't had your genitals circumcised. Your heart has been circumcised. The, the sinful, wicked part of you has been removed. You're the true circumcised ones. Don't let anyone make you ashamed of that. Don't anyone, let anyone make you go backwards into Judaism. Now, if you have been circumcised, I'm not telling you you're doomed. I'm just telling you uh, that is a, a mistaken understanding of something that needs to be done for salvation. Now, if you did it for hygienic purposes or your parents did, I'm pretty sure you don't need to do that. But anyway, that's a, that's a whole other thing. Here's that, that's the thing that he's concerned about. There are people going from church to church. They're trying to persuade the Philippians and the other churches, you need to get circumcised and become Jews. And he's saying, nope, Christ saved you as Gentiles. You can be a Gentile and be saved. Any questions about that before we move on? This is going to turn into a larger conversation about works. Okay, and are we saved by works? What's the answer to that question? Are we saved by works? No. What's the one thing that saves us? Faith, yeah, saving faith, and we'll get to faith. Here he's going to talk about works. The Jewish religion and some forms of Christianity are very much believing that, that there is power in works to save. So uh, circumcision in, in the Hebrews, but there are Christians today who think, because I was baptized, I am saved. Or because I said the sinner's prayer, I am saved. Or because I had a mountaintop experience when I was 13 at church camp, I'm saved. And that's not the picture the, the Bible paints. The, the picture the Bible paints is repentance is a daily thing that proceeds until the day you die. It's not a one-time thing. It's not an act. It's a relationship ongoing between you and your, your father. So here Paul is going to talk about the Hebrew works that he participated in that do not save. So we're, we're still in chapter 3. We're in uh, verse 4. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He's saying confidence in works, confidence in his flesh. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's not bragging. He's just telling the truth. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, he's a Jew. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, they were a very strict sect. As for zeal, persecuting the church, because the church was seen as heretics. He says, I'm willing to persecute heretics for my religion. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Man, this is, he, have you ever read the Old Testament? There's a lot of law in there. He says, I was not guilty of breaking a single commandment. I was faultless. I perfectly obeyed. I was from a good lineage and a good religious tradition, and I obeyed it well. I had reasons to be confident. Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So I considered them again, I consider, but now I consider them the opposite. They are no longer a benefit to me. 
Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he really has lost all things. He's in prison with not a cent to his name. He's saying, because I have Jesus, I regard everything else as loss. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So it's that faith that saves us, right? And what saves us when we get to heaven is not God calling us up to his judgment seat and going, oh, Cody, you were so good. You attended upon all the law so well and you never messed up and come right in. It's, I see my son Jesus' righteousness upon you. Come on in. That's the only thing that saves you. If Jesus' righteousness has not been imputed onto you, if you have not been washed in the blood of Christ Jesus and born again through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. It doesn't matter how much good you do in your life. There is nothing you can do to put God in your debt. It's already over. If it's on your righteousness, you're done. But if it's on Jesus' righteousness, which is imputed onto you whenever you have faith in him, that's a deal. That's a scandalous deal because who here is as bad a sinner as me? Paul himself called himself the chief of sinners. And this is a hard thing for us to understand. I, I told you the story last week of a guy who came and sat in worship. And afterwards, he was so upset with himself over this addiction he was carrying. He says, but I'm such a good person. I do these good things. And I said, that way lies damnation. You cannot take comfort in the good things you do or the good person you think you are. The only one that can save you is Jesus and faith in him. Now, that message doesn't feel good on the front end. But who's tried to be righteous and perfect on your own? How did it go? You were terrible at it, weren't you? Because on your own, you're fallen, you're weak, you're sinful. That is the nature of life. It is not comfortable. It's not a happy thing. It's a real thing. And the real thing is that we have a real Savior in heaven who has designed a gospel for you, designed a way of life for you that can and will save you. Take my yoke upon you, he says. He makes promises that he can and will save. All it requires for us is to return the love he has given us, to have the faith that he has supplied us with. That's it. I'm going to read that again. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see the centrality of faith there? It comes up twice. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Is that something you want to know? Well, then you should be right on board with him as he goes forward. And participation in his sufferings. Do you want to participate in Jesus' sufferings? Did Jesus suffer? My worldly heart does not want to suffer as Jesus suffered. But Paul is saying, I want to suffer as Jesus suffered. I want to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why would someone want to become like Jesus in his death? Verse 11, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. He says, if resurrection takes place through a cross, then I'm walking with my cross. I'm going to my cross. If the only way to salvation is through a cross, put me up there. That's what he's saying. Now, we have a culture that says, oh, you don't need to suffer like Jesus suffered in order to be saved like Jesus was saved. Paul's saying the opposite of that. He's saying you need to be ready to suffer, willing to suffer, eager to suffer so that you can be raised as Jesus was raised. He's connecting those two things. 
So we have the hymn, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? You remember the answer? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. It's reflecting this sentiment right here. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now let's get this straight. Paul, was he a holy man? He had spent his, his almost entire adult life, decades, traveling around, planting churches, suffering for the cross of Christ, being persecuted, hated, maligned, abused. No scripture like the back of his hand is willing to die for his Lord. And even he is saying, I have not reached the point of sanctification that I need to be at. I haven't reached it yet. So what do you think? Are the odds are that we're ahead of Paul and we can relax or... Is it more likely that we're behind Paul and we need to be right here with him sweating it out? All right, y'all know where I'm on. Okay, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's saying God has called me to that prize, but I got to run to get there. Not just walk, he says, I'm on a race, a marathon. And I need to forget what's behind me. I need to keep my eyes on the prize. And I need to apply myself going straight here because deathbeds are coming. And I don't know how long I've got. Verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of such things. He's saying, if you're a real Christian, you'll agree with me. That's a fancy way of saying it. If you are mature, you'll take a view of such things. And if on some point you think differently... That too, God will make clear to you. He's saying, so if you disagree, God will correct you because I'm right. Paul, Paul he, he was sanctified, but he was confident. He knew he was right and he wasn't going to go, oh, I might be wrong. If you saw me online, I got in an argument with somebody yesterday. I said, I might be wrong if you can show me. Paul didn't do that. He said, I'm right. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong and God's going to show you. But I'm not holy like Paul, so I need to be more humble in that way. Um, verse 16, only let us live up to what we've already attained. So he's saying God has already extended salvation to us. He's already purchased it. There is nothing that, that needs to be earned or done. We just need to live up to it. Everything has been done. There, there is nothing else that God needs to do. There's nothing else that you need to do. There's just attaining what God has already done for you. That's it. Living a life of submission and conformity to the mind and will of Christ. That's what we're doing here. And we leave here and we hear things from the world going, oh, you got to do what's right in your own eyes and you need to do what feels right. And the Bible says, no, just do what God said. Verse 15, uh, no, verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those of us who live as we do. So this is a part of that confidence. A lot of people go, oh, he's so cocky. He says, just look at me if you want to see what it's like to be a Christian. Well, imagine that I decide I want to be a carpenter, and I become a, uh, an apprentice, and I study under a master, and the master starts saying, now, Jeffrey, watch what I'm doing. Watch how I make these cuts. Look where I get my wood. Look how I treat these. Uh, what if I just said, you are so cocky. You're just telling me to watch you like you're some kind of master. He'd be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a master. <laughs> and unless you do as I say, you're not going to be a carpenter. And that's how Christianity is. Paul was a master Christian. He said, look how I live. Watch me. Watch the people like me. 
do what I do, and you will learn what it's like to be a Christian. It's not being braggadocious. It's being honest. You don't magically know how to be a Christian. You have to learn from others. Verse 18, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, the inference here is not there are people outside of the church who live as enemies. Like, that's not scandalous. He's not going to cry about that. Of course, there are people living outside of the church who are enemies of the cross of Christ. The reason he's crying is there are people inside of the church who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So, do we have people like that today? Let's, let's see how he describes them in verse 19. Their destiny is destruction. That means they're going to be damned or destroyed forever, right? Their God is their stomach. What does that mean? So idolatry is serving any God other than our God, right? So he's saying they're serving as God their stomach. What, what does a stomach do? It digests food, but what relationship do you have with your stomach? Is it always a happy one? So if you're hungry, it says, feed me, feed me. But the stomach is the root, in the ancient world, it, the stomach is the root of all your passions. It's where you get your sex drive from. That's where your anger comes from. That's, that's where all these things that lead to sin come from. And in 1 Corinthians, he quotes some people saying, hey, food made for the body and the body made for food. Let's just give in to our impulses, whatever. He says, no, that way lies damnation. Life is not about giving in to your urges. People say, God made me this way. God made you to be reborn. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom. Fine, you were born in sin with sinful inclinations. Your life is not about giving in to your sinful inclinations. God did not make you to be a sinner. He made you to be a born-again saint. And that's what he's saying here. There are people within the church going, I don't need to be born again. My stomach tells me things that I need to know. I trust my gut. I'm going to follow where it leads. And he's saying, nope, your God is the Lord. You follow him regardless of what your guts do because your guts have poop for brains. He didn't say that last part, but that's, that's basically what he's saying. Their God is the stomach. Their glory is in their shame. So that's connected to the sinful thing. They have these natural impulses that they follow through on, and then they say, hey, these are natural things that we're doing. We shouldn't be ashamed of these things. In fact, let's glory in them. You know, I realize I'm giving this in the context of Pride Month, right? But there are a number of people who have affiliated themselves with practices that the Bible condemns as bad and not only are they not ashamed of it, they lift it up as prideful. This is something I'm proud of. God does not smile at this. Apparently, I'm just going to preach on all of the controversial things today. Verse 20. But our citizenship, we, the good guys, the saints, people in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. We're not people of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, his name, Jesus, literally means Savior. We have a Savior, named Savior, in heaven. He's coming for us. Who, verse 21, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is good news. Our bodies fall apart. They're led by sinful inclinations. Our bodies are not always going to be like this. One day, our bodies are going to be like Jesus' body. Eternal, blessed, beatific, glorious. Everything in us that is not of him will be burned away, and we will be pure and perfect as he is perfect. What's behind all of this for me is, do we desire holiness or not? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How often are people who claim the name of Jesus hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Righteousness. 
How often are people aiming at that, that final crown, that final glorious reward, and just sprinting as fast and as hard as they can get there? And then how often are people who claim to be in Christ kind of lollygagging? Going off over here and looking at the nice flowers and going off over here and having relationships with people on the side of the road. Jesus calls us to run, keep our eyes on the prize, forget what's behind us, endure to the end, and we will find that our faith, the faith God has given us, will save but life is not about having our cake and eating it too. It's not about following the belly and then receiving that new body. It's not about doing what's right in our own eyes or what feels right. Life is about denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following him. I preach the same sermon every Sunday, don't I? It's almost like all the gospel is united in a common message that no matter where you dip your toes into, you're going to come to the same theological conclusions. I am a simple man. I am, not, I, I am seminary trained. I picked up a bunch of garbage from seminary. I can do all the mental gymnastics. I'm not going to do them because they're a lie. The Bible says what it means. It means what it says. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner that we can live blessed lives in submission to Christ Jesus. That's what the job of the church is. So if I gave you a hard word today, if I, if I, if I made you feel bad, I don't enjoy making you feel bad. But my hope is that it's medicine that leads on to healing in your life and in the life of the church. May the Lord, Lord bless my words, despite my imperfection. Help them be a blessing to these people and to the world. Amen.